0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate
1: Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprat. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. It's not often that you get to meet and chat with somebody of
0: real depth, of real breadth, real vision, somebody who embodies the whole notion of being future ready and future fit. Today, we get to talk to Ronnie Khan, AO, a remarkable social entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of food rescue charity, Oz Harvest. It's a social enterprise with people and planet and purpose at its heart. I'm so excited by the opportunity to talk to somebody who is a role model for voice agency and advocacy. Somebody who in her work and in her life helps us to understand what today's learning for tomorrow's world is all about.
1: I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor?
0: Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, Go to a school for tomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go.
1: Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Thank you for asking, Adriana. It's very kind of you. There'll, there'll be a few of you
0: who know that the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy is one Staffordshire bull terrier more <laughs> than it used to be. Yes, And so we say bravo to Bravo, a new member. Of the clan, and um, already, already demonstrating uh, due deference to the quinoa trees, to the uh, silken tofu plants, and the uh, the, the the other vegan friendly um, accoutrement that lie in the streets, you know. And he's even been no- he's even been noticed to be to smile at the occasional fixie riding path. That, on that's the bike that's side.
1: wonderful to hear. No 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 doubt you have him well trained not to be speaking during uh, the recording of podcasts either. Well, we'll just see about that, won't we? We'll soon find out. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. I'm super excited, super excited to have our guest, Ronnie Khan, on the Game Changers Series 10. I first briefly met Ronnie back in 2019 at Space, where we were all privileged to have Ronnie's presence amongst uh, a group of Australians who are ambitious for a new Australia. Ronnie typifies someone who has continued to be ambitious, not only for a new Australia, but for our collective humanity. Ronnie, I'm going I'm to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story, how you've gotten to where you are today?
2: Thank you so much. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here, and I just want to acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my deep respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations peoples and wherever anyone is listening today. I am probably the most unlikely candidate to have built and created an organization that leaves me in awe as to how much it's revered. And I say that because I think it's really important. I was a shy little girl who never had aspirations for anything. I was petrified to open my mouth at school at the age of 50. Dean, my head principal called me in and said we think you might have potential to be the head captain it's going to require you to talk to the whole school I said thank you very much I am not interested in that role and left thinking what on earth were they thinking that they even asked me So self-belief was not a huge part of who I was. So I do think that's really important because people look at me today and think they couldn't possibly do anything out of the ordinary or they couldn't possibly become leaders. I think every single one of us is a leader. Some of us have titles, some of us don't, but every single one of us is a leader. But all of that shifted and changed as I matured, as I went through some really interesting phases in my life, including going from a very middle class, but really low end of the rung family that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but what I did have, and what I was surrounded by was extraordinary energy and extraordinary ability. And I'll explain what that means at the age of six. So my parents were, Just simple, beautiful folk. My dad was an architect. My mother actually had been to university, which is quite interesting, given that she would have turned 103 this year. So her parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Father wanted to be a doctor, of course, could never fulfill that dream, had no language, no money, but put all his four children through university. The son becoming a doctor and the three girls getting degrees in the humanities. But my mother never worked. My dad had an accident when I was six, which meant he was in hospital. I didn't think he'd live the night, but he was in hospital for a couple of years. What that meant was that fundamentally, overnight, my mother's life changed. She had to find work. She had to look after three children. But what she did was she never became a victim. She never, ever complained. And so from a role model point of view, and I I, I say this because I think it's so important and we all forget this. It doesn't matter whether you're a parent, a friend, a teacher, a business leader, your actions, who you are, how you behave are subliminally being absorbed by those around you. So I didn't realize at that time that I was absorbing values around positivity, around work ethic, as well as really values since I was brought up in apartheid South Africa. And my parents were not brave enough or courageous enough or had the energy to fight the system. But they told us it was bad and we lived like it was bad which is really an important thing because you had to be brave to actually take a stand. Um, They chose a school that had very liberal in South Africa, liberal meant left-leaning values. Mm -hmm. And that, again, subliminally, I didn't realise I was getting that, but I did, and those values only came to play much later in my life.
1: We're going to speak in a moment uh, around learnings from your book, a repurposed life. But before I ask that question, I want to just pick up on something that you've shared. First of all, thank you very much for sharing your journey to date and the story of your parents. Hearing stories where individuals overcome their adversity, in particularly in, in a place like South Africa at a time where apartheid was such an impact on so many people, it is so inspiring to hear that. I love how you shared your mother not being the victim, rolling up her sleeves, this ordinary resource becoming quite extraordinary, but you weren't even aware of it at the time. So thank you for sharing that. But there was something that you shared very early in that journey. And that was when you were approached in school to be the head girl. And you said, no. What I'm interested to, to understand, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, Ronnie, is when was the moment you started saying yes? Mm
2: -hmm. great I guess the moment I started saying yes and there was a lot of life's journey in between and I think it's really important to know that I actually started Oz Harvest when I was 50 Mm -hmm. and the reason I say that is for all those people who think that it's too late that they can never do anything because it's past it's never too late Never too late and, to make a difference. And,
0: and Ronnie, that's very important because Adriano is just about to turn 50. That <laughs> happened to me a couple of years ago. So I'm with you on that one. But Adriano, he, he's a little bit worried at this stage because he's getting he's getting to that point in his life. You know, mate, it's not too late. It's, it's all in front of you.
2: Thank you. Absolutely. So really, I think that is a huge part of it. But, you know, for me, it was really when a light bulb went off And that actually was a physical one as well as a one in my head um, that aligned and made me have absolute clarity as to what I was meant to be doing on this earth and how to utilize my skills to bring that to life. And that's when suddenly I had a voice because I had something to say.
1: Sure. So let us let's, let's pursue that then. So my question that I was going to give you regarding your book, your brilliant book, uh, A Repurposed Life. And for those who are listening who haven't read it, it's, it's this powerful story of how you can find your voice, how your heart and your and, and, and find your heart and your kind of deepest calling. That's probably the best way to describe the, the, the premise of the book. It's it's this beautifully engaging and read that is that has this heartfelt uh, exploration of choices that ultimately define who we are. Thank you for writing it, by the way. Uh, it's a book that I continue to get lost in on, on a regular basis. And when I'm feeling flat, Ronnie, it's a book I pick up and I pick I, f- I flick through it and I pick up anywhere in the ch- anywhere in your book to realign myself and give myself a bit of an awakening of, of uh, what really matters. So thank you.
2: Thank you. You know what's so extraordinary about what you're saying? It's just, I kind of feel a bit, um, I've got goosebumps in a way. I did a gig last night to a bunch of people. I was just, you know, to show up and talk for 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes on disruption, inspiration, whatever. And it was an invited group of guests or people had the opportunity to accept an invitation. And a woman came up to me and she said, look, I came to this dinner because I needed to see you. I needed to tell you that your book got me out of bed. So I looked at her and she said, it got me out of bed. I've read it numerous times, marked all these pages. I now have a job and I credit that. So I, I, I feel so utterly overwhelmed to even think that. Yeah. But it's interesting. But but it's a
1: bit like the story you were sharing earlier that, you know, not realizing that all those different experiences you had in your formative years uh, was having an impact upon you, just the same as yeah. when people encounter your words and your story uh, and the story of others. I mean, I, I want to get to my question, but I, I remember uh, when I was in South Africa for the very first time back in 2013 or 14, I believe, I was doing volunteer work for a Marist school organization there mm-hmm. in um in uh, Johannesburg, in observatory at, at um, Sacred Heart College, where, where Nelson Mandela's grandchildren went to school, yeah. and there was one day where the brothers drove me to the apartheid museum. Yeah, and, and of course, my, my my knowledge of that history was was an Australian perspective, right? Like it was limited, and it was it was a moment in the history class that was probably a week, not even a couple of lessons. Yeah. Uh, but here I was, where you know, I received my ticket to enter into that museum, and I received the ticket to enter in from the white. The black door uh, or the I, white door? I got the white. <laughs> I got the white door this time. I actually was disappointed initially. Yeah. I thought I really wanted to experience it from from a perspective that is very foreign to me. However, yeah. I think it was really important that I went through that white door because I, I actually could feel I, I actually felt a disdain for for uh, you know fellow white people and, and what they, the way in which they treated another human being. Anyway. Why I'm sharing this with you is that I went through this exhibition which is through, through this whole museum which is one of the most profound museums I've ever encountered because it's really one to be encountered and really felt. I then sat in a room where there was the footage of now Mandela as the president. Yeah. And he walks out onto the to the rugby pitch at the World Cup. Yeah. With a, with a white audience. And they started chanting Madiba, Madiba. I mean, I was I'm getting goosebumps know, thinking about it now. Yeah. And, and right. it was that it was that moment that when you encounter those things, you don't know when something's gonna impact you the way it impacts you. No. His story, uh, his remarkable rise, and then the the embracing of him of the people is something that that kind of courage and compassion all rolled into one, you know, stays with you forever. Anyway. I'm, I'm you're taking me down memory lane here. So I don't, it's got to be less about me and more about you, Ronnie. So my question to you is this, you've touched upon it a little bit in your response before when you turned 50, but can you share with our listeners a little bit more of an insight into that moment when you decided to enliven the goal to nourish Australia through the food rescue charity of Oz Harvest? Yeah. You, you were, you were a hugely successful person in hospitality running, uh, you know, a great business. You've turned 50 What's happened in that moment that encouraged you to realize your calling was something
2: else? Yes. So literally when I said a light bulb turned on, um, I'd been rescuing food. I'd become a rogue food rescuer through my business. My business was creating beautiful events. Every one of them had food. It had taken me 10 years of throwing away food to suddenly realize that actually that was unconscionable and that that food could be repurposed. And so I'd started doing it and it was starting to fill my soul and make me feel way better than putting on a beautiful corporate event or an Mm. event, you know, where I I looked at the couple that were getting married and knew that they'd spent all this money on their wedding. But in fact, if they'd have spent some time on their marriage, they might have had a chance of success. So I had reached that point, but still loved what I did. Um, but I went to visit South Africa for a very short little visit to see a, a sh- someone who I didn't actually even realize was a mentor, but became uh, was always important in my life. A neighbor um, an older woman, Selma, who this just in the past couple of months has turned 95. And she said, we're going to Soweto. Now, growing up in South Africa, I had never gone to Soweto. Soweto was township now that word won't mean anything but in South Africa what it means is a place that has houses cobbled together with corrugated iron dusty untarred roads a mess a seething humongous amount of people living all together on top of each other because it was built to isolate black people outside of the city and it was not a place that white people went to when I grew up in South Africa. Now, I had left, and in the meanwhile, Mandela had been released, and it was a new South Africa. And Selma had stayed and was an activist. I didn't even know what she'd done, but I knew that she was a changemaker. And on the first day that I arrived, she said, we're going to Soweto. Now, I was petrified. My childhood of Soweto was this fearful place. But she clearly seemed to know exactly what she was doing. She knew how to get us there with ease. So clearly it, it, it was this new, everything new about the South Africa I was visiting post Mandela's release. And as we drove into Soweto, Selma turned around and said to me, actually, and she said it under her breath and very low key. And she said, um, actually, I was responsible for bringing electricity to Soweto. And when I heard that, the hairs on my arm stood up and all I could think of was, I want to know what that feels like, to know what you make, what it takes to make that kind of difference to masses of people. And we were heading in there to visit an AIDS clinic that Selma had set up over and above everything else she had done. But by the time I got to the AIDS clinic, I knew that my life would never be the same again. So I do call it my light bulb moment. And, and many of us have that in so many different ways. But that, for me, I knew I came back to Australia saying, I'm going to start a food rescue organisation and do you want to be part of that? You know, like a woman possessed. And you, I probably still am possessed.
0: Uh, uh, Ronnie, how many meals a week do you reckon your charity is providing to people in need? Around so if we
2: divide 52 in 35 million, I can tell you weekly, but we do 35 million a year.
0: So we're, we're, we're a bee's knee under about 800,000 um, meals
2: yeah, in a week. that's something, good.
0: 800 something times. Something like that. And that's not bad yeah. for a history teacher, maths. you yeah. know, so it's sort of. Because yeah. usually all I can add up to is 20, because that's as many marks as there are that's in good. That's good. But yeah. So that's 800,000 lives that are impacted on a weekly basis. Yeah. This is coming from the girl who didn't want to be school captain because she didn't want to step forward. Yeah. And we talk about the notion of taking a big step forward and up. Have yeah. you ever stopped doing that since you made that decision?
2: No. I've not worked a day in 17 years. Every single day I wake up with gratitude. I wake up with the knowledge that I have taken a gift, been given a gift. It's not about me being gifted; it's about being taking a leap and deciding to do this, and it fundamentally changed my life.
0: Okay, all right. So it's uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a humbling experience just talking to somebody who's who, who does this, and so many of the people who are part of the Game Changers audience, are so people who want to change the game. And there is that gap between intention and action. I think it's about the propensity to make a decision and then act on it. What inspires you every day to keep making decisions and keep acting, to keep stepping forward and stepping up in what you do?
2: So I will just go back to the one word in the first instance is gratitude. I wake up in a bed. I lift up my eyes, there's a roof over my head and I look out the window and I have a view and I have a window. So first of all, that awareness. But secondly, it's infectious. Giving is way more enriching, joyful, nurturing than getting. And I, the period before I turned 50, I was exposed to... Um, living a life of plenty in a way. Um, I, I succumbed. I was bought, fell into a relationship that was seemingly made me a princess. And it's what I thought I really always wanted. And I, I recall shortly before I ended that relationship, by the time this man turned around and said, I think we'll go to Hong Kong for the weekend for a party. And I turned around and said, Ugh. I don't want to do that. I gave myself a slap on the face and said, who are you? Where have you come from? Who do you want to be? Is this, is this, where are your values? So it was a re-examining of my values that brought me to that. And then that notion of, of being brave and courageous and saying, what's the worst that can happen? I can fail, but it actually never even occurred to me that it wouldn't work. Actually, actually, I I didn't have a business plan. I didn't walk into the first funder that I walked into, which was a corporate that I'd never walked into that building or those buildings for that purpose without a business plan to say, what I want is money because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save food and I'm going to give it to people in need. Now, what could you find wrong with that just didn't (laughs) it was like (laughs) the logistics around it was it was irrelevant it hadn't I mean I knew that I could do that because I'd been doing it sort of in a funny way
0: so there's a really powerful inner process of inquiry going on there these these questions that you ask yourself and we we we, in in the work that we do around the world and particularly work of, of character education we would talk about you know four really important questions who am I where do I fit in? How can I best serve others? And whose am I? Very, very similar questions to yours. And, and I suspect if we go back deep into the many different traditions that are represented in this conversation. And I know there's a whole bunch of different Eastern European zones and there's Ireland and there's, there's, there's Yorkshire and there's Italy and there's Austria and there's South Africa and there's Australia and it's that whole melting pot that there is. All of these traditions have got, the, have got that notion of asking questions. At some point, you've got to formulate what you think might be answers, and then you've got to bring other people with you on the journey. This whole journey about waste is really important, but it has to go from an inner set of questions to an external narrative that can take people with them, a compelling narrative. How did you create a compelling narrative that helped to convince the community Private enterprise and governments that fighting for food waste and feeding hungry people was one of the moral imperatives of our time. It's a sort of thing that growing up, our mums, I remember my mum might have said, you know, my father, particularly with, I mean, they were both very good at guilt, trust me. They're very good at saying, you know, <laughs> eat your food, think of the starving children in Africa. But that's a thing that takes place in the family. You've created a public narrative and you've helped to unite our country around this. How did you do that?
2: Well, it's funny because I remember walking. I'm, I'm going to tell you a story, then I'll tell you. I'll answer that because there's a really, and I hope I remember my answer. The story is that I walked into a big corporate office with a CEO who was sitting with his feet up on a table who had been forced. Somebody had said he has to see me. He had absolutely no intention of getting involved or supporting me in any way and he sat with his legs up and his arms folded and he said why why are you here and why should i even listen to you i said did your mother ever tell you to eat your food because there's someone starving somewhere he put his feet down on the floor he banged his hand on the table and he said every day she told me that i said well so did the fifteen thousand staff that you have their mothers told them to there's a compelling reason for you to take this on board so that your staff understand where your values are at.
0: But somebody has to make that observation. This is the point. Somebody has to make that observation and take it out of our homes and out of our kitchens and out of our dining rooms and into the public discourse. How did you do that?
2: Okay. So I had a problem that I needed to solve and that is a beautiful clue to Anybody who wants to start doing something and just I have to say this here and now not everybody has to start a charity doing something can be random small acts of kindness goodness generosity every day being the very best you can be if you're the barista be the best barista if you are a lawyer and you hate your job find the best way to be the best lawyer, but the problem that I had to solve was in my business, I was wasting food every day. And I needed a solution. And when I came upon a solution that seemed to be extraordinary, it seemed like, oh, wow, this is cool. I could do this. Mm -hmm. And so many of us find a problem and then say, why doesn't somebody else fix it? Now, I still haven't worked out why I was the gifted one who chose to fix it because I've had a million people say to me, I could have, I would have, I meant to, I should have, I knew about the problem. But you know what? I was called to action. It was my time to do that.
1: So, so much of what I'm hearing you say is that the generosity of giving chose you to be the vessel in so many ways yep. for others.
2: Absolutely.
1: Phil and I are, are two individuals who advocate really, really strongly with the schools that we support around this notion of service learning. And that It's about an education that that engages young people in active and responsible citizenship through authentic kind of community outreach and service. How can school communities better develop the emotional competency and the social and cultural awareness of its students through social entrepreneurship?
2: Two ways. So literally this morning, I put a pitch into a publisher to take a repurposed life and create a repurposed life for young readers. Because I just think there are a whole range of elements that tick every box that I think young people need to become change makers and to become and be given the ability, instead of looking left, right, thinking and overwhelm, being given tools to be able to do this. I think every school on its very simplest base could have composting, could have a veggie patch. All of these things that impact the planet so fundamentally, they can create eco warriors. We've got programs that go into schools, that into primary school and into high schools. And I'm I, really, we just want to get those programs out into every school. That teach sustainability, teach around waste, teach around healthy eating, teach around how to become an eco warrior and a change maker by taking action. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, every person who's listening to this in the world is going to say, can we please have the Us Harvest program? That would be kind of cool, and I'd be thrilled to do that. But I think it starts with the school being committed to understanding that they're not just, it's not tokenistic, they're not just trying to get great results so that their school gets more kids into it, Mm -hmm. but that they're bringing out thoughtful, curious questioning, generous, encourage generosity in the school, encourage actions of giving, of volunteering, of running food drives, you know, things that are actually not complex to do in a school, but engage with the community around them and And look and see what problems need to be solved.
1: Yeah, so there's a real lesson here, I feel, for for all the educators listening, particularly the school leaders. What's coming really clear is that how do we then ultimately, you know, help schools, great schools, have a focus less on productivity and more on being significant. That's what I'm hearing you really say here powerfully. Ida Butros said about your book. Uh, a repurposed life, she had this quote the inspiring story of a woman with a big heart who dared to make a difference. Why is community and compassion
2: so important to you, Ronnie? So, a friend of mine, Vince Frost, turned around and said, Community is the new immunity. I truly think that within community, In the word community, it's about Mm. collaboration, it's about sharing, it's about giving, it's about receiving, it's about all of the elements that that embrace a full human life. And it's interesting because you spoke about, in a way, servant leadership, and Mm -hmm. you spoke about serving and encouraging kids to be broader thinking other than just what can I get for me? And I would, lo- I would hate to be a 15-year-old today. When you look around the world, it's kind of quite overwhelming. So I do think we have to embed this, this hope and optimism around the ability to make a change and difference. But I see this also in the corporate world. I mean, I'm running sessions on purposeful leadership because it's about bringing your whole self to work. And, you know, trying to get into any corporate that will have us. And I do this with a a psychiatrist friend who's an extraordinary human being, colleague, but really a very thoughtful program because we have to shift the way business treats staff. I mean, we're hearing about the great resignation. All of these things are about how we treat each other. And what we've all been through, and we don't want to get back to pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, thank goodness for COVID in a way, because it's made people stop in their homes and think about who they want to be, what kind of a human they want to be. And I think that's all just so really important, particularly for you. Mm-hmm. They are our future, so we have to give them the skills, not just the, the curriculum skills. mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Ronnie, you, so much of what you're talking about embodies the character of a game changer. I, I, I mentioned those questions earlier, the, the who am I, the where do I fit in, the how do I best serve others, the whose am I. Uh, the, the who am I is, is the curiosity piece, the, 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 the where do I fit in, that's the compassion piece, the how can I best serve others, that's the courage piece, and then the who's am I, that's the conviction piece. It's all there in one person. and You, you talk about bringing your whole self to work. Um, We talk about the whole work of a school and we talk about a whole education for a whole person. And yet our nature too often is not to be like that. Our nature is to divide all the different pieces up and for those pieces to compete with each other or to refuse to draw the connecting pieces around there so you know i'm the history teacher and i don't care what's happening in that stupid art room over there i'm just going to focus on history for a moment and do my little bit and worry about whether or not kids get great exam results or we care not. about
1: history and art by the way just like me point that out phil <laughs> we're, very inclu- we're very inclusive in the yeah. art and design world yeah, yeah. And, and
2: that's about integrative i mean it's a Absolutely. think about medicine think about you you've got a sore finger it's not because it's just a sore finger you can't just look at my hand why don't you Absolutely. check my feet? It's, it's about the, the integrated
0: piece. It's the integrated piece. The integrated piece.
1: Hmm.
0: How do we? I've, I've got two questions for you. So, the, the, the first question, which is how do we help people to see the whole of life, the whole of learning, um, as opposed to just the constituent part? What's, what, what, what's your advice?
2: Well, the first thing is to first of all realize that all we have is now. And I think that's really important because, you know, you think, okay, I'll do this bit here and I'll do that then. And then I'll plan and I'll plot and I'll, you know, one day, well, first of all, we don't have one day, you know, I guarantee you, and this is going to sound maybe a little crass or a little, it's really trying. I, I'm not trying to be, I promise you, Shane Warren three weeks ago, the day that he woke up, did not know and did not think Shit, I hope I've done every single thing I ever wanted to do. It's the biggest shock and surprise. So, the point is, it can happen to any one of us. So, I think that's really important about integrating all the things that we think we may, may not, could one day. Hell, I'm really interested in that, but it's not the time now. It's really about trying to even live a whole life. You know, it's about it's being with the people that you care about. It's about doing the things that you care about. I say, you know, people ask me all the time, where do you find purpose? Well, I can tell you it's not on the supermarket shelf. It would be awesome if it was because, geez, that would be easy if we could buy a load and drink it. But actually, it's when you look in the mirror. It's who. It's, it's the answer to those questions. It what, and the fourth question there is what actually brings me joy? What can I do that, that is within my wheelhouse, within everything that I have that will n- not be harmful to somebody else? So there's no harm in making money. There's no harm in doing all these things as long as there's a component that adds value to society and does not damage planet or people in the process.
0: You talk about looking in the mirror. And thank you for your answer, by the way. You talk about looking in the mirror. We think that if you let what's outside of you drive what's inside of you, you're far more likely to go the distance. Because at the end of the day, sometimes when you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see, so you don't you, you stop looking in the mirror. You know, our Voyage app we've released based on our, all our, on all of our character um, uh, education work is all premised on the notion that you actually need a crew of people around you to help you all, uh, along on your journey. So when you discover that piece that's inside you, it's got to react. With, mm-hmm. with, with what's outside you. How do we help people permission themselves to show what's inside them to the people around them and play in that vulnerable space so that we can go on that journey from me to you to us?
2: Well, firstly, passion is infectious. It absolutely, most people kind of walk around a bit half dead. So I think the minute somebody's energized and alive, it's infectious, which is probably why cult leaders attract people. You know, I, I, I'm saying it has negative and positive connotations. I think I, there's no doubt in my life that I shine because I am surrounded by extraordinary people. There's not even any doubt. But I do think that attitude begets attitude. So. A school that wants to inspire its pupils needs to have teachers that are inspired, that love what they do, that care about the subjects, that share it in a way that is meaningful and isn't. You know, the testing and exam system in our school system is, is detrimental. I mean, if you shit at writing an exam and get nervous and can't put pen to paper, doesn't mean you wouldn't make the best lawyer because you've got great thoughts, you know. So I think our system does need to shift and change. It's the one thing that actually hasn't, if you look at the way history has changed and the world has changed, you know, there are a couple of things. I think it was a uh, Simon Sinek. I think there's a, a somewhere, there's a few things that haven't changed and it's sort of like painting a house. We have not yet found a way to not take a paintbrush and and a tin of paint still comes in a tin of paint. But, you know, you look at what a telephone was and what a telephone is today, it's significantly changed. You look at schools from 200 years ago, there are still some schools that are exactly the same. A bell rings at the end of a period.
0: Don't we know that? Don't we know that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't we know and, that? Up How can you
2: be inspired in that situation? A whole lot.
0: The whole yeah. lot. You know, we still, we still... We still teach children about World War One as though it's the crucible of the modern experience, exactly. um, and it's, of course, it's very important. But there's other stuff right now that's that's far more important to the formation of the world and the life that we have um, right now. It's about habit. I think. I think. I think culture grows. Mm-hmm until it gets to a point where it rusts on and the habits which once served us well become bad habits and then they no longer serve us well. But we're in in the process. We're we're, we're rusted in there. Mm. One of of the worst habits that we can have is complacency. I think an even worse habit is cynicism because a cynic is somebody who used to believe and no longer believes, has given Mm. up hope. You talked earlier about waking up every day with gratitude. That's a choice that you make. How do you... How do you make that choice?
2: So have I got time for a little story? Of course you do. Of course. Awesome. I was talking to five 15-year-olds and seriously thinking, what on earth am I going to say that is of interest? <laughs> and I'd come on after Ando. Yeah. Not an easy gig. Anyway, for whatever reason, I must have rocked it. They listened in absolute silence. Mm-hmm. And then a kid at, way back at the of the amphitheater wearing a hoodie, Puts up his hand and says, firstly, I want to thank you for giving me food. This is in front of 5,000 kids. And then says, I need to ask you, what do you do when you have a bad day? So firstly, I thanked him for his courage in sharing and felt so grateful that our harvest could help him. And then I said, I have a choice every single day when I wake up. I can choose to be miserable. I can choose to look out and see the rain and forget that the sun is behind the gray clouds. Or I can remember that the sun is there and I have chosen to be positive, to be happy. And it is a choice. And this kid turned around and said, I think you might've just changed my life. (laughs)
1: That's beautiful.
2: Also then bounded down and said, can I have a hug? (laughs) I graciously and happily embraced him. And then a kid shouted out, "What's your email address?" And without even thinking, I shouted it out. Probably got about three hundred emails, but so many of them said, "I wish I could have had a hug." So there's something about connection, touch, feel, emotion that we haven't allowed ourselves to feel.
1: There's something. Uh, there's something so profound in this conversation today. Uh, I I find myself being deeply moved with so much that you're sharing. Uh, I feel, Phil, that I'm, we are in the presence of a, of a, of a disciple and a beacon of, of humanity who wake up wakes up every day and chooses love when so many choose fear. Uh, what what, what a, an inspiration you are to us, as well as all our listeners. Many leaders in schools over the last two years allowed themselves, Ronnie, to get caught in the construct of the fear because we were in a crisis. And it was... To, you know, at a time where they had to pivot to a new delivery model that was totally foreign to them. And of course, that will bring fear. I get it. I get it. But what advice would you give school leaders in particular at maintaining this balance between the commitment to the, the immediate needs of their community and its mission, but at the same time waking up brave and unafraid with the necessary energy and wellness for self and others to be optimistic and live in this this construct of love?
2: So the first thing is, instead of pivoting, they could try pirouetting, which is what we did. (laughs) Fear is about the most paralyzing Mm -hmm. emotion. I mean, I think if I were a teacher, I look at these kids and just think, Oh my God, here is the future. Each and every one of these creatures are just the change makers. Our so, so that is inspiring in itself. So I think it is a huge responsibility to be a teacher. And I think we completely have undervalued that profession. So in the first instance, we have to redefine and, and re-evaluate the role of teachers because There isn't a more profoundly important profession, really. It's on a par with whether you're a doctor, a scientist, a teacher, because in the hands of a teacher lie the future Mm -hmm. of every single nation. So I think teachers have to take on this new mantle of pride around who they are and what they do and that yeah step out of step out of the paradigm mm-hmm. of lowly paid not well thought of and change the narrative mm-hmm. and we can change narratives mm-hmm. clearly i changed the narrative that surplus food is valuable and is a resource and isn't something that should be thrown away so if i can do that anybody can do that
1: so let's re- reclaim the space with a, with a mindset of, of this deep optimism that, that not only the young people in front of us, but ourselves are all part of this collective future. And, and that should bring great optimism. Often we know that humans can focus on deficit, right? And that's what you're alluding to there as well. And they can focus on negatives, particularly when when there's, there's change or challenge in front of them. You and your work, though, remain this, this inspiration for anyone who chooses to see life's challenges as opportunities to grow. That's what I'm hearing you say so, so profoundly today. I'm interested, though, in have you had times when you thought, this is all too much, I just can't do this anymore?
2: This is a really tough answer because it's, it's, it sounds disingenuous and it makes it hard for anyone else. In truth, I've never once thought, this is all too much, I can't do it. All I've ever thought is, shit, how can I do this better? How can I do this? How am I? The universe keeps giving me these opportunities to redesign, reimagine, recreate. And that doesn't mean that I'm not a human being. That doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, I work very hard on, I read inspirational books. I have a spiritual guide and teacher that whose purpose is just go out and serve people you know it's very simple go out and serve people he's not a sophisticated university professor he's a simple teacher in a province in India but it resonates so deeply with me so I think really it is about attitude and I am particularly fortunate that I was I, I was given all this energy and this ability to see the bright side of everything when, you know, that's how I grew up. My father who was la- who, who ended up being paralyzed in one leg, limp pain, leg, second leg with calipers and metal never even thought of himself as disabled and nor did we. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I was blessed with, all of that, out of that misfortune, I was blessed. But I think I just, I have a positive disposition and an unlimited amount of energy that I channel. And and every day I come across generosity, and I come across extraordinary acts of goodness and kindness that enable me to continue doing what I do. So I haven't got a lot to be despondent about. Can I just ask something?
0: Do you, do you ever find people get intimidated by how enthusiastic and energetic and, and Absolutely. capable? Absolutely. It's
2: like my biggest challenge is, you know, I don't, it's not that I am an intentionally the energizer bunny, but I but I'm sure it's intimidating. I'm, I, I, I'm I'm sure it is. But I I try and I I I guess that's why I keep saying Actually, I'm not special. I just found a way to channel what it is that I was meant to do. And it happens to make a huge difference to a lot of people. But every single one of us has the ability to channel what they do to making a difference. And in the, in the, in the Jewish tradition and culture, there is a saying that if you change the life of one person, you change the world because we have no idea what that one person will do that kid who told me that I changed his life is now you know from needing us harvest food is a youth worker and is now a leader in his own way so it's it's we all have the ability and it's how we shift and change and use that for good it's about using it
0: for good so what's your sense, what's your personal sense of the future? How do you see yourself evolving as a person now? I mean, there, there, there is another, there is another traditional Yiddish saying, men god you know, men make plans and God laughs. Absolutely. Do you, I don't do have plans. All I have
2: plans to do is to, if I can impact youth, that's what I mean. That's hugely important to me because they are the future. If I can make a difference to corporations, to business, To how they they bring their purpose to life that's what I meant to do and Uh, and all I can say is every single day I'm I'm this I live alongside the notion of death because we're so scared of it but birth and death are probably the same
1: well this has been an extraordinary conversation that started started off with the focus around social enterprise with people, place and purpose at its heart. But the Ronnie Khan type of contagious positivity is an an encounter with a divine hope Uh, and it has been an absolute privilege to be in your presence. This particular conversation today reminded me of an encounter I had in Cape Town on my second trip to South Africa, Ronnie, where I was walking along Victoria Harbour there and in the pavement Carved in the pavement was the following saying. Now, I apologize for my pronunciation, but I'm going to have a crack at my Afrikaan as best as I can here. Yeah. Matho ke matho ke A person is a person through other people. So much of what we have just experienced with you in this last hour encapsulates this spirit of humanism, or as the Africans would call it, of course, is imbutu, you know, the concern and the well being of the others. It is clear to me that Ronnie Khan is a believer in in having the character of how you treat those. Well, I believe that you believe that character is how you treat those who can do nothing for us and that we continually have these selfless acts uh, where we give through our gratitude of our time and place and our generosity. Ronnie, uh, it has been an enormous pleasure and privilege to be in your orbit I love your personal sense of the future, that our young people are our future and that the more and more that we invest in them, the more optimistic we will be about this new world that we find ourselves in. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's It's been really a joy and a privilege, really, to, to spend time talking to both of you.
0: Thanks, Ronnie.